Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. We have a new sponsor for the show because Mackie mentioned the name. Excellent. Thank you, Mackie. I will send them the bill. <laughs> and as I said before, they yeah, will probably, uh-huh. they'll probably ignore it and maybe even put out a restraining order. I don't know. That would be a bonus. Um, but they'll anyway. just be crazy Canadians. Welcome to the 323rd edition of Polycast. I'm Dan Q, and I'm joined by Makalua. I need something stronger than this tea to wake me up. The me and team. Walking backwards just as quickly as forwards. And Mega Bears fan only hit this news button once this morning so proud of myself okay so mackie and jason need the same thing and phil can get <laughs> it for you whether he's running forward or backwards we'll just send him on his way and then i guess i'll just be doing the show myself for a little bit okay yeah. so i'm not going to sing all of the topics uh, no i'm not going to do that <laughs> you, had, you had your chance last time I just sung the segues between the topics. I didn't actually sing the whole topics. And as we commented, because Mackie wasn't here, it just wasn't as fun. (sighs) (laughs) So this is what I get for going to a race, I see. That's right. We saved it for you. We saved the singing for you. And probably the only thing worse than our actually singing is us thinking about singing. Because, well, that's just your own fault that you're thinking about it. Alrighty then. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i was just kind of kind of waiting for an appropriate time to, to be on but it would be pretty non-sequitur i get in the conversation at the moment it's all right <laughs> non-sequitur is what we do best i mean the thread title includes the phrase help me and i think mackie is thinking that right now so there's our segue mm-hmm. all right oh well, that's the best we can do forward we go at least as quickly as backwards By Andy Mant, and the third title is indeed Help Me Understand the uh, Trade Routes and Trading Posts. The first thing he says is that he finds international trade to be lacking compared to intra-empire routes and is worried that they are going to fix it by doing what they did in Beyond Earth, uh, which is give intra-empire routes a huge nerf. He's saying maybe they could do other things, uh, like make a hike in statistic production costs not so problematic or whatever. And then he's asking about trading posts and how they boost value. The text is that the bonus to gold from trading routes is gained when passing through cities with the trading post. What does it actually mean? Does the trade route have to go directly through the city center? How likely is this considering the artificial intelligence for trade routes is extremely derpy? Seriously, the trade routes go to the shortest route possible as the crow flies, completely eschewing existing roads and routes. So what the heck is the point of trading posts? Or do they only have to pass through a city's controlled territory? Well, I know trading posts come about once you have successfully completed it. And they extend your range, right? Yes. So my impression was that you would need to hit a city that was taking the extended range that you needed the trade post to use. I'm pretty sure that the trade route does not have to go through the city center. 
There was an example in the thread from Messix about the extending the trade routes. Was example two. The player settles three cities on the far side of the continent. These three cities are all 15 tiles from Babylon, but cannot reach Toronto. If the player completes a trade route in Babylon, can the three distant cities now also reach Toronto? There are trading posts in both Toronto and Babylon. Can these three distant cities and the three original cities reach one another for internal trade routes, making use of the two trading posts? And the answer is yes. So sometimes it's a matter of, I would really like to be able to connect city A to city B, but first it's got to go to city C because it's too many hexes away. And then city C can serve as a link between A and B. You'd think if you know where all your cities are, it would be easy to send trade routes without having to have the trade post in between. Yeah, sometimes you settle pretty far away. I've had to use um, trade routes to extend between two cities in my nation in like the late game when I was trying to stand yeah, up. Yeah, when, when you're halfway across the map, but when you're all like on the same continent or something, it's hmm. Yeah, well, plus then there's the uh, water routes confounding factor as well. Yeah, the, the rules in game are really not clear on this, so you know you just kind of fudge through it. No one in the study even asked what I was wondering is what, what's the formula for how much bonus gold you get for a trade post? Like if I want to send one or if I want to think about whether it's worth setting one to a city, how much gold can I anticipate from the resulting trade on after that based on the game rules? I have no idea. A post by Gadams. The question is, why the trade exclusion of markets versus lighthouses? And the post is, I don't understand why a strong, well-positioned city can't build both a market and a lighthouse and thereby produce two trade routes instead of just one. That's certainly realistic, right? Is uh, there some uh, kind uh, of balance issue? Seems so arbitrary and unnecessary. Love to hear a logical explanation. Now getting on to the editorializing here, I think was just a balance concern that coastal cities, because you could build a harbor and a commercial hub and because trade routes were so important and because you didn't need the buildings, you just needed the districts to get the trade routes to begin with. Those coastal cities were very, very, very strong because trade routes are very, very strong. So they decided you could only have one or the other and not both. Whether or not we agree with that decision, eh, I'm kind of on the fence personally. Mm. Some people are saying that this offsets the, quote, normal disadvantage for settling coastal cities. That comes from a traveling Canuck who just says that coastal cities in general aren't that great in Civ 6, at least compared to previous Civs, because of like lower productivity and stuff like that, I'm assuming. Yeah, you just have fewer tiles, so you can potentially yeah. work better worth anything. Although the fact that the expansion added more districts that you can put on the water in the form of the uh, water park or whatever... That's nice because it means you don't have to build the entertainment hub on land. So having more districts that you can build on water certainly makes cities with a lot of water tiles more viable. That's true, but that's not enough of a replacement compared to the fact that you, you have more production capability and a lot more district potential still on land. And yeah, that's fine. Not all city locations have to be equal. And there are some advantages to having a city on the water, including just the ability to field a navy if your city is close enough to it. Even the if it takes you that, 40 turns to build that one boat. Well, yeah. Or you could buy it out if you have a wealthy enough nation. You can buy one a turn. But that would be pretty hard to accomplish But in principle. <laughs> anyway, you also have a bit of issue with fresh water in many cases. Because if you want multiple coastal cities, then uh, you're pretty limited on the housing, at least for a while. 
Uh, in the thread, there is a little bit of a callback to Civilization Beyond Earth. Not Civilization Beyond Earth Rising Tide, but Civilization Beyond Earth. C.P. Wimmer had said another possibility would be to allow a second trade route, so we're talking about the marketplace and the harbor, but require that it always include the city with the extra trade district. Conceptually, I like that it would reward coastal cities, but represent the unique fact that harbors are allowed for seagoing trade. It was suggested by Traveling Connect that one way to do it would be to distinguish between land traders and sea traders, which is what we had in Civilization Beyond Earth. But then they changed that for a trader just being a trader with the expansion pack Rising Tide. Hmm. Well, uh, Brave New World also divided the trader into the land caravan and the cargo ship. Yes, it did. So most recently seen in, in Beyond Earth. I think that would be fair. I understand that the initial reaction to, oh my gosh, you've got a market and a lighthouse. We need to go in and make it so that a trade road is only generated by the first one of those two and not the second one of those two. Yet now, in order to get additional trade roads, it's not simply enough, of course, to have the commercial hub district and the harbor district, but it's tied to those tier one buildings. And so we did that, and then they got rid of that I think the big issue with having so many trade roads and it being powerful, maybe quote-unquote too powerful so early, whether it was internal or external, is because all you needed to do was construct the district. Well, now that you have to have a Tier 1 building, if you decide to put a lighthouse in a harbor, I certainly hope you have another city that's on the coast or it otherwise has access to the coast. Like, if it itself has a harbor, you could say... I'm not going to be able to send a trade route to a city that's on the coast that also does not have a harbor. Maybe that's a little bit too strict, but I like the idea that we could separate between those two things because you could also make the argument, well, now, Dan, you might send goods from the coast from a harbor and then it's going to be received inland somewhere else, but it does have to have a receiving port of some description, right? I mean, if we're talking realistically, it's like, well, you didn't have a harbor, so we just dumped all the goods on the shore. Good luck using them before they, I don't know, get washed back into the water, let alone trying to go into the interior. So I don't have an issue with that at all. Another alternative would be to just change the rule in general so that all trade routes have to originate from a city that has either the market or the lighthouse and then just change it so that there's reciprocal benefit so that the source city, say, gets gold and then the destination city gets the food and production. Yeah, they could do that. That would be a limiting factor that would maybe not make having multiple trade routes exploitative, because even if you do build a city that has both a market and a lighthouse and you get two trade routes, you can't just send those trade routes between any other two cities that both those trade routes have to originate from that one city. That one city is has the extra infrastructure, so that one city is sending the trade routes. So you're limited in what you can do with it, but you still have them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose you could also make the argument if you've got an interior city that has commercial hub and a market and they want to get their goods across the water. I don't know if you want it to be that it still has to maintain a trade route, but it definitely would have had to have a trade route in order to construct a road from that interior city to that city of yours on the coast. So goods from the marketplace in your commercial hub, say in your capital that's landlocked, can get to your second city that's settled on the coast. And now that city you have on the coast serves as that intermediary like we were talking about in the last topic that it becomes that city c right that your capital city a you want the destination city b somewhere else on the coast but your city in the center there once that trade route is finished and then you've got the trading post there and you've got the trading post in the capital now okay i've spent the time and the resources to do that because you've decided that for whatever reason i would rather have that be how 
the marketplace goods get somewhere else across the ocean as opposed to that coastal city needing both a commercial hub as well as a harbor in order to be able to have a sea route and a land-based route going at the same time, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and it doesn't even necessarily have to divide them by land or sea, just by number of routes available. Oh, well, and tying back to the number of routes available, too. I actually like the idea of distinguishing between the two. I think this would necessitate some, and this came up in the thread as well, some additional user interface um, upgrades. <laughs> and also, just in general, like the last topic, have the game clearly explain in-game, at least in the Civilpedia, if not, in fact, with some kind of uh, overlay, or better yet, just have it all, if we want that and we need to know about that within the trade screen overview. Some people suggested in the thread that Oh, if you want to increase trade route capacity, let's forget about the exclusion between marketplaces and lighthouses. Let's forget about connecting it to districts. Let's just have it tied to population. That would at least reward having fewer, bigger cities as opposed to city sprawl. There is that. And I get, I think that's what people are going for there. When it was just all you had to do was plop down that district and there you've got an additional trade route capacity. I mean, how often were we going, hey, this city is in the tundra. It's in the ice, but you know what? I can settle it and I can chop down some forests and jungles and get myself a commercial hub. And guess what? I don't have to do anything else with that city. It gave me that trade route capacity. My internal or my external trade route capacity is now increased and it's more than paid for itself. The fact that you then need to construct that tier one building on top of it, and then if you connected it to the fact that, well, no, that trade route, kind of what you're saying, Jason, that additional trade route capacity is now coming from that city. That's nice that it's stuck up there in the tundra and the ice. You wanted to use that trade route for international trade, but it's buried deep within your empire. So exactly how are you going to do that? Okay, well, go ahead and ensure that that city is connected by road or it's connected by sea to at least one of your other cities. And then you have to have that investment and that time for that trade route to complete. And that's a trade route that you're now using for that as opposed to something else. I think this can make it really, really interesting and also logical, more logical. There was a suggestion... Says in order to trade, good for trades needs to be produced, and they are produced in factories and other tier two buildings. How about allowing cities with a commercial hub and a market to have a second trade route if they have an industrial zone with a factory as well? And then cities having a commercial hub with a market and an industrial zone with a factory could get yet another trade route if they build a harbor with a shipyard or an encampment with an armory or an aerodrome with a hangar. And I'm thinking this is a lot of things to start lining up now. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's realistic, but this is getting a little micromanagey now. <laughs> Trading us already a little micromanagey. That's, yeah, do we need uh, more micromanagement excessive. with our micromanagement? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a, a yo dog in this case for sure. And that suggestion came from Mr. Ray. Uh, I like the idea, just not in Civ Six. Uh, yeah, a game with a smaller scope, that would make a lot of sense, for sure. Darkcase77450, he started a topic, he is a pitch for an ape governor. Says, you know, governors were a bit of a hit and miss addition to the game, but he quite liked them, but he'd like to see more. He said, Forex has pretty much covered all the bases with seven governors included in Rise and Fall. After racking his brain for a bit for an ape, he figured up an environmentalist. The default title, Druidic Lore, they have plus one faith, unimproved woods tiles within the city's borders. You know, that kind of makes sense that the first environmentalist, so to speak, would be like some sort of nature religion type. Tier one titles, you've got one with nature, which yields from natural wonders within the city's borders are doubled. 
or healthy citizenry, as so long as the city isn't starving, it requires half as many amenities. That second one's a little powerful. You only need half as many. It's only in that city, though. Yeah. But if that's your capital... Yeah, it I'm would just be like trying to grow out one big city. Yeah. Don't mind the yields from natural wonders being double because you're not going to have necessarily all the tiles of one particular wonder in the city or you're sacrificing some other land to have that in your city. So that's not so bad. Tier two titles. It looks like there's only one. Yep, there's only one. <laughs> Just titles, but there's only one. Green energy. The city's industrial zone gains a major plus two adjacency bonus if adjacent to your river. Okay. It's bonus extends to each industrial zone within six tiles of the city center. You know, when I think green energy, I don't think hydroelectric normally. <laughs> I mean, if you also included that to be something like X number of desert tiles for like solar or wind. Well, we have offshore wind farms, too, nowadays. So The issue with that, though, is then you could have this governor like right at the start of the game. And what, you're going to have solar panels in 2000 BC? <laughs> I mean, that's true. That's true. The governor that lets you build the fisheries. So like I could see there being room for like, yeah, maybe this governor lets you build a windmill or something yeah, like that. There you know? you go. Yeah. <laughs> Hills, windmill. There you go. And we've had before is you used to build windmills on a hill. Right. And it's for industrial zone, which is a bit later. It's not the very start. Well, and that's the thing, right? I mean, by the time you get to an industrial zone, then I know this is a tier two title, but you could abstract that quote unquote major adjacency bonus, uh, plus two or whatever value we're using here. That could start off as a windmill, or you could abstract that as a windmill, depending upon the era that you're talking about. The part about that I kind of go, wait a minute, this bonus extends to each industrial zone within six tiles of the city center? Yeah, isn't that like Ruhr Valley? That and the governor is a choice for a particular city at a particular point in time. The governor is assigned to that city. That city's benefit that it's providing other cities is because of how much more powerful it is. It's kind of an indirect thing. It's not directly providing that benefit to an industrial zone in another city as well. If you want that benefit in another industrial zone, then you need to move the governor. Yeah, I'd rather it just be the ability to build like improvements, and then you can move the governor around just like you can with the uh, aquaculture lady. Exactly. Liang. I, that and I generally don't like when the governors are tied to like districts. Uh, I, just, I just don't like that you have to get to a certain point in the tech tree before that governor's ability even becomes relevant. I mean, at least it's tier two. Yeah, true. Default would be brutal. But, that would be absolutely brutal yeah. because then, well, I'm not going to choose this person for a while. Right, exactly. Like uh, Magnus, for instance, has the one thing, a bonus towards industrial hubs, but it also gives you the benefit of like you don't lose population when you build the settler. So it's like it has something that's beneficial early game and then it has the industrial hub bonus that's beneficial later game. So, you know, they could do something like that as well, where it does something small that's useful the whole game and then also has a buff to the industrial zone. So that if you don't have industrial zones, you haven't gotten that point in the tech tree, this promotion is still worthwhile to take. Tier 3, ecotourism, naturalists purchased in the city are 25% cheaper, and it doubles the tourism from national parks in the city. See, I was hoping there would be something like that in there to do with the naturalist national parks. Now just go and build a national park. Oh, wait, that's a separate yeah. issue. <laughs> that's an entirely separate issue. Should you actually have a national park, you could do this. But hey, naturalists are cheaper. Well, if you're, and, you're or, putting this governor in a city that already has a, a natural wonder near it for the tier one promotion, then, you know, it's a good chance you can put a national park there. Yeah, you might have the right tiles for it. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a, I know Dan hates the word, but, you know, synergy there. <laughs> <sighs> It's the Dan equivalent of the Mackie side. It is. The sad thing is we all know what it means. Next time I'll sing the word synergy so that both Dan and Mackie side. 
Oh, oh we can have a harmony. We can have a harmony. Okay. Yeah, you might break the internet. Uh, also, organic food plus one amenity in the city for each farm, pasture, and plantation built on a bonus resource. I'm not sure what makes it organic because it's on a bonus resource, but okay. Yeah, and that combined with the healthy citizenry, that's um, that's a lot of happiness. That's yeah, that's a lot of amenities. I mean, that would be useful if you had this governor. And, and this sounds crazy, but you could send them to a front line to a city you just captured, so maybe it wouldn't flip automatically. If there wasn't the on a bonus resource in there, especially when we're talking about in the city for each farm, that would be kind of like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But the fact that you need to get to tier three, it's a pasture and a plantation, of course, on a bonus resource and a farm on a bonus resource. And by the time you're looking at tier three, you know, you might be deciding that that plus one amenity really isn't worth the while because my empire is large enough that I've got enough, you know, luxury diversity. I'm getting enough luxuries from trade with other civilizations from city-states that I'm the suzerain of. I've got myself some unique merchants, great merchants, and that have given me some uh, additional amenities that that plus one really isn't going to be felt greatly. But I actually kind of like this one. I think it's a very edge case thing, but then again, so is going to tier three. I like the idea in general. I think some of these promotions need a little bit of uh, tweaking, again, in particular, the, the green energy one. But I think it's a good idea in general. Mackie kind of alluded to it already. I'd like to see Dark Ace follow up and actually tell us what is the second choice for Tier 2. And also, also when trying to decide this, and he doesn't go into it, what exactly is the hierarchical structure? Like, can we take one with nature and then directly go to green energy? Or if we go with one with nature and we wanted green energy, would we have to get healthy citizenry too? Because that's the particular path that we have to follow. That would also be helpful to know. Hey, he's got yeah. some work for Firaxis to do. <laughs> well, I figured after I saw there's only one thing in Tier 2, it was going to be one of those ones where you have to take both and then go through the middle and then pick one at the bottom. Mod it. Put it in the game as a mod. Yeah. Be uh, my suggestion. <laughs> An environmental governor would not be a bad thing. He did suggest that the... Uh... I'm just enjoying how funny you are, Jason, because in one sentence it's, well, we got to give Firaxis something to do, and then to Dark Ace, yeah, mod this. Oh, okay, well... <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, that's what was so funny. <laughs> yeah. Dan's all giggling. We're like, what's so funny, dude? Another topic. This one started by Archetype. Archetype. These forum names. Jeez. False flags and war declaration changes. So this suggestion is basically to give players, or to give civs anyway, the ability to attack other civs units without necessarily having a declaration of war. I mean, it starts off reading as, oh, so you want privateers back. Yeah, well, it's more than that. Yes, it's more than that. I did really much enjoy the uh, hidden nationality ability for uh, privateers going back to, uh, what was it, Civ 4 and uh, colonization. That was a really fun unit to have because it it worked so differently than every other unit in the game. The privateer really did have its own unique identity, and I really missed that. I've liked the privateers in Civ 5 as well with the capturing other ships ability. Like, that was cool. But again, the privateers in Civ 4 were just so unique and so interesting to use. But anyway, this idea, basically, you can make units that pretend to be other Civs units in order to try to provoke other Civs into declaring wars on each other 
and if they catch you in the act, then it's like a Cassus Belli, which are all good ideas. I've played games before where different factions like basically start out in a de facto state of conflict and you actually have to negotiate for peace and close your borders and all that. And you can fight each other in little skirmishes and then you keep doing that. Eventually, the AIs come to really not like you and then there actually is a state of legitimate war. And I think there's definitely room for a concept like that in Civ. I think that could definitely work in the context of civilization. So I, I think it's a good idea worth uh, pursuing. Maybe something Fraxis could experiment around with in a scenario at some point, just to kind of test the waters. Archetype even suggests bringing in espionage to this, along with combat as well as diplomacy. If you have certain diplomatic visibility, or even a spy on a steel designs mission that would allow you to make a ship that looks like a ship from another sieve. Wow. One of the ideas that a coworker of mine and I came up with at one point was the idea that privateers would not start with hidden nationality, but then there'd be like a letter of marquee promotion. You give it that then gives it the hidden nationality. And the way that that would work is if the privateer is sunk, there would be a percentage chance, like, I don't know, 50 or whatever, of discovering what civilization that privateer belonged to. And then that would then give you a, a reason for denouncement or a casus belli against that civilization. I like that idea. And this could even be extended to like a bandit land unit as well. Mercenary unit like the Landschnecht was in Civ Five. Give that a promotion that has a uh, hidden nationality benefit so that you can have both land and sea privateers, so to speak. The only thing about, and going back to the steel design mission, it says that would allow you to make a ship that looks like a ship from another Civ. Other missions have either a particular time limit, if it's the, the very passive, like, oh, you can have a look at what's going on inside that city center and its immediate vicinity for four turns. Or, congratulations, you just successfully stole X number of gold right here and right now. But if you're able to steal designs for missions that allow you to make a ship that looks like a ship from another sieve, that's in perpetuity then? Or perhaps you could say that, well, this design for this ship is very time-limited because they're going to be modernizing and changing the design or whatever. So as long as there was a window in which that would be effective, not simply going forth, that would allow you to make a ship. Or it could simply be that that, that would be good for that particular unit. Like I know, for example, I steal the design for your frigate and I can make it look like a frigate, but by the time they get to battleships... Oh, we don't have a steel design for that anymore, so that's then set within that particular window. That would work. Kind of a off-topic idea that this reminded me of is maybe there could be a, um, a spy mission in uh, encampments that actually lets you spawn a copy of that civilization's unique unit. Uh, was it in Civilization Five that there was a city-state that would allow you to construct a unique unit for a civ that wasn't in the game? Yeah, if I remember correctly, uh, in Civ Five, mm. I think in Brave New World, they made it so that each city-state was given a unique unit of a civilization that was not in the game. Yes. And if you were the yes. ally of that city-state, or if it was a military city-state anyway, yeah. and you were the ally of that city-state, then the random unit that they would give you every so often had a chance of being the unique unit of a civilization that was not in the game. Yeah, because I swear there's something in one of our turncast episodes where Dan is all like, ooh, look at what this city gave me. And that was a really cool ability. So, you know, having the ability to duplicate other civs' unique units, I think would be something that would be fun to play around with. I think it would have to be very limited. So it would either have to come from a city-state or it would have to be, like I said, like an espionage mission where you get one copy of it and not necessarily the ability to just build it. But it would be a fun thing to play around with. Also, props to this person because this was their first post in Civilization Fanatic Center and now we've featured it on Polycast. So is there really reason for them to ever post again? Yes. <sighs> 
Recorded for episode 322 with Dan Q, Mega Bears fan, Alpha Shard, Timothy001, and Ceiling Cat. Stringer 1313, an idea for agendas. The original post reads, I read a lot of complaints here, which I agree with, that the agendas are dumb because A, the AI leaders don't actually pursue their agendas, with rare exceptions like Gandhi and Alexander, and B, following an agenda has such limited diplomatic value because it's dwarfed by warmonger penalties. Not sure I'm the first to suggest this idea, but what if they supercharge the agendas by giving big bonuses with each agenda to the AI player, which will help compensate for the AI's deficiencies? For example, uh, in the original post, if you have populace, then your population growth is doubled. I don't know about doubled. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's pretty crazy. And so forth. For one thing, I don't think you would need to do this with the civilization's unique agendas because they already have unique ability. So that would basically just be another unique ability. So it might be kind of redundant. But for the other agendas, they're all interchangeable. And I could see something like this working because this is kind of how the civilization traits in Civ Four work, exactly. where there was like a, a pool of, what was it, like five or six different uh... traits. And each civilization had a unique combination of two of those traits. So they all had the same effect regardless of which civilization had them. But each civilization had a unique combination of two of them. Yeah, that's exactly the same thought I had was that it reminded me of Civ Four's traits. I don't know that you should necessarily limit this to the AIs, even though part of this idea is to improve the AIs play, because if you're going to have this mechanic, maybe also give the player agendas as well and let the player have bonuses or, you know, maybe even tied agendas into era score so that by accomplishing your agenda, you would get era points or something like that. Mm. You know, they could have done things like that where the agendas don't necessarily give you bonuses, but they give you advantages for playing towards them. Yeah. It can also be used uh, in regards with diplomacy as well. So that right. if one of the AIs meets your agenda, you can give them a diplomatic boost, sort of like what the AI does for you. I think something else that might be interesting, I think it would really require increasing the size of the agenda pool, I think, to keep things from getting like stagnant, but to have perhaps the leaders gain agendas over time. So you start off with one agenda and then maybe halfway through the game they pick up another one and maybe in the last error or two they pick up another one. So sort of like you don't have to worry about do one thing and then they're happy for the rest of the game as opposed to trying to evolve with their evolving agenda it might be a little bit more dynamic, I think. Tie it to the play style of that the AI. Yeah. Like yeah. If he's warmongering, give him something that's going to be fine with his warmongering. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong because I didn't actually play uh, Beyond Earth that much but the agenda system for civ 6 that the beyond earth kind of had a similar tree thing right like a predecessor to that kind of i remember beyond earth it was a lot more rigid the expansion added you actually earned diplomatic points which you could mm -hmm. then spend towards upgrading your leader's abilities and that would be uh, kind of interesting to have and uh, beyond earth also had an interesting mechanic where every ai had two different relationship modifiers with you there was trust and fear so if you were very friendly to them and traded with them a lot, you would build trust with them. Whereas if you had like a really powerful military and were hostile towards them, you would build fear towards them. And both of those things would act as modifiers. So if a civilization was particularly fearful, you could actually be more successful at threatening them and making demands and stuff like that. Whereas uh, in Civ 6 right now, I've never been able to <laughs> do a successful demand on an AI. They always say no, no matter how much stronger I am, or even if I've got their capital completely surrounded, they just won't do it. 
It was a, a shame that Beyond Earth in general just was not that great because uh, I fear that maybe Firaxis thought some of those ideas were failures when, in fact, some of them could actually be very applicable to regular Civ. And I, I wish they would try them again and see if maybe they stick. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how Diplomatic Capital tied in with uh, Rise and Fall's Alliance Points kind of concept. Are you saying you'd be able to, like, spend Diplomatic Capital to boost the alliances instead of yeah. just having to wait for them to accrue passively? Yeah, something maybe perhaps a little bit more dynamic like that, or some sort of unified currency between the two. I don't know. They probably would want to redesign a thing they just designed. But it'd be weird to have two like, competing diplomatic currencies at the same time. That would feel a little bit odd. In the thread, A Clue Without talked about that each AI would still have a secret agenda. It would work like the current system. Secret agendas revealed through diplomatic access. Whereas Lord Lakey talked about, I think they should get rid of the hidden agenda altogether, replace it with a personality and strategy gauge, both of which are hidden at the start of the game and unlocked via you know diplomatic visibility or espionage. You do not need to get rid of the hidden agenda altogether. It is hidden at the start of the game, but it's not hidden to the player full stop. It's not like I have no idea how this mechanic works. I have no way of understanding this how mechanic works unless I go diving into the code, searching on forums, etc., etc. If that was something that was revealed as a result of diplomatic visibility and or espionage through the game, then that would be completely workable. I mean, otherwise you could try to infer what it is that they're doing based on their actions, but if you really want to know that information, or feel you need to know that information, then there are reasonable steps that you could take in order to get that information, make the hidden agendas, so long as the hidden agendas were quote-unquote reasonable, and again, also those agendas that would apply to the human player as well as the AI player, that would make sense. That would be a worthwhile change. CK and WO posted about uh, a central bank, something uh, unlocked after you research economics, buildable in the city square, the commercial hub, or the government plaza. I mean, if it's a treasury, the government plaza seems more appropriate, but would allow the ability to borrow or take out a loan against your empire. What? <laughs> Each loan requires gold per turn, uh, basing the gold amount and requirement of gold per turn on how many commercial buildings you have in, in the capital or all of your cities in general. Like uh, one market in the capital could allow you to borrow 500 gold at 15 gold per turn. Uh, uh. I wonder what game speed we're talking about here and at what point yeah. we're talking about, just for added I context. And that seems like otherwise. a really low low threshold for 500 gold. Well, that might be just where it starts and then maybe it goes up over the course of the game. Yeah, I just, yeah, but like one market, I, I think you'd need a few more markets than that to get 500 yeah, gold. Well, they're talking about having a central bank that you build somewhere. So I would have assumed that you would have to have the central bank in order to do the loans. Yeah, so, but then saying that the amount that you could borrow is based off of other buildings, it would seem like it would have to be everything in your capital or something like that. Well, you, yeah, you want to be careful about something as complicated as that, as opposed to just making it a set value. But yeah, yeah they, there's got, it could work that way. It could be some function of your, quote, GDP or whatever, but I don't know if it needs to be that complex. Yeah, because even if you just did it by the number of commercial buildings you had across the empire or something like that, it would make sense. I would just really like to know at what point in the game would you only have the one market and then 500 gold would be an appropriate loan? 
Well, I, I almost feel like you'd want it to be, from a gameplay standpoint, almost the inverse, where the cities with less financial infrastructure would be able to take out larger loans because they don't have the capacity to generate that much money quickly anyway. So like from a balance standpoint, I kind of see this as like being a catch up mechanic for cities that mm. or for civilizations that don't have a very strong economy. If you or make the amount spending of spending all your time building the units to take over other civs, not necessarily infrastructure. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, that could be a problem, too. But like it just seems to me like if you make it based on how much financial infrastructure that civ already has, kind of, it's kind of just one of those rich get richer kind of things. And like I don't would, would a city that's generating that much gold per turn need to take out a loan anyway. I almost feel like, like I said, it should work the other way around. It's something that cities with weak financial infrastructure use this in order to get large lump sums in order to build units quickly or improve their economy. But it's an interesting idea. I don't think civilization has ever had a concept of national debt in the game like modeled at all. Yeah, just your overall civ debt, but not in that same way. Yeah, well, you can go into debt where the game starts automatically disbanding units and stuff like that. But that's not the same thing as having like a national debt where Mm -hmm. you're actually paying off debtors, taking out loans and stuff like that and having a credit rating. Or maybe it could be something like that where maybe it is tied to like some kind of abstract credit rating mechanic where each time you take out a loan, your credit rating goes down until you've paid it off. So you can't keep taking out large loans like they get smaller and smaller and smaller (laughs) until you paid them all off. So you can't do the EU for a trick of getting into a loan loop and then just declaring bankruptcy. Yeah, and I've done that in like city building games oh. too, where you take out a loan and then you like pay it off with a cheaper loan and then take out the big loan again and you just have kind of an endless cycle of money. That um, <laughs> that can go bad in EU4 though, at least. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, I, well, they did make suggestions here to make that possibly go bad here. One was yeah. a, a housing market sort of sim. Where if too much housing is available, the rate of gold per turn would go up to reflect you have oversupply in a housing market. Or your citizens are too unhappy. I could even see national debt maybe even being a civic. Well, or a national budget being the civic and the debt's just an effect of it or something? Oh no, just the concept of a national debt being a leaf civic somewhere on the civic tree where it unlocks this ability. Uh, As opposed to to being part of economics. Yeah, because central banks really is... A somewhat more modern idea. Yeah, I think it's going to be a question also of when it appears in the game. We wouldn't want it to be, like you said, Jason, the richer getting richer. And I'm not keen on it being used as a catch-up mechanic simply because we know how powerful gold is in the game and being able to compensate or indeed overcompensate with production. You could tie it to a civic. Like if you want to be able to construct the central bank, have it be a government plaza district, then you have to go and get that civic. Okay, then I have to go and construct that central bank. In the meantime, you could be saying, what I'm going to be able to get out of that, maybe it's better that I just build some more commercial hubs establish some more trade routes, tying into previous topic, for example. But I kind of see it as like a short-term compensation mechanic. And I think about certain turn-cast games and our cooperative multiplayer games when we're going up against an AI. And yes, I'm looking at buying units and I'm like, oh man, I'm 15 gold short. I would really like to be able to finish building this frigate this turn so I can send it to the front. And I go to somebody and say, hey, can I get 15 gold? Great. Yes. Thank you. Small lump sums that can get you kind of over that hump because it's a timing thing. I would like that X number of gold this turn because it's going to allow me to buy something. Even if you had nothing in the bank, it's going to allow me to buy that one thing, but I have to have it so that my economy is sufficient that it would pay X amount of gold per turn over the course of however many turns it is. And you could have it so that, you know, I would be willing to pay maybe 
uh, less gold per turn over a longer period of time in order to get that gold because I don't have a lot of gold coming in. So then the central bank is still getting compensated and they view you as a reasonable loan risk. But let's say this 10 turns, for example. During that 10 turns, you can't ask for another loan. You need to be able to demonstrate that, no, I'm going to pay this back. And then also tying to what you said in part, Jason, that if you were successful in paying that off in 10 turns that you managed to keep gold per turn income so that you were able to do that and you were not defaulting on that loan, that maybe you could get a little more the next time, that it would be a little more generous, that you could get a little more gold, or it could be the same amount of gold again, but you've got more turns to pay it off, or you don't have to have quite as much gold per turn in order to pay it off. So it becomes kind of those fringe things where I would like to use it in a moment, but I'm not going to be able to borrow like thousands upon thousands of gold to compensate for the fact that I've got three cities and you've got 30, a bit extreme there, of course, or the fact that I have 10 cities and you have 10 cities, you decided to invest in economic infrastructure over the last 50, 60 turns, I did not, and in one lump sum, I'm now able to compensate for the fact that I didn't do those things over the last 40 or 50 turns that you did. Well, but the players that do have a better economy would have the option to take out these loans as well. It's just they would be in a situation where they wouldn't necessarily need to. Like, that's kind of how I'm thinking of it, where, you know, everyone can do it, but it's going to be more useful for the people who have poor economies. You know, I'm not an economist, but I think historically that's usually what national debt is used to do. It's used to kickstart a struggling or stagnant economy. I'm fine as long as it's a Band-Aid. Right. However you view it as a problem, as long as it's a Band-Aid and it's not a rubber band. Right. A sieve that's in the back of the class economically should not be just perpetually taking out loans and buying buildings and units until they're suddenly the top dog in the game. Definitely, that should not be the way that should work. But it really depends on what the role you would want for it to be. Would you want this to be a reward that successful players get to get more money? Or would you want it to be, you know, like I suggested, more in the ways of like a catch-up mechanic? I think you kind of said it earlier, which is that regardless of your empire's economic state, you can take advantage of this. It's just that's that situational thing that either your economy is really good or it's really bad. And it's just in this particular moment, you need this additional lump sum in order to be able to kickstart whatever it is that you think that you're going to try to do. Then I think that's fair. It ends up being that choice. It's just like, okay, do I construct this district in this city right now or do I construct a different district? Do I not construct that? It's not, whew, I don't need to worry about the fact that I'm only making 10 gold per turn. I just took out 5,000 gold. I don't need to worry about filling up my trade route capacity. I'm good with my one out of seven, eight. I can ignore that part of the game now. I can ignore that aspect. So we find that sweet spot between, oh, sure, you can go ahead and get out lots of money in loans because you're already generating lots of money, which in and itself is its own reward, while at the same time not being the other extreme. And I think we're all in agreement that we need to find that sweet spot, and there are checks and balances that you can have in there, such as, again, okay, you can't just build it from the outset of the game. You have to go to this particular Civic. Perhaps it's down a path that you wouldn't necessarily always go down because it's always getting to the good stuff, that you then have to go and spend the time to construct it in a district. So you can't go and buy a central bank. Uh, You know, you have to spend the time to build it. And then in the meantime, it's the question of, am I really that much farther off now? Or could I have just done something else with my research into my civics and the production in my city that has the government plaza? That would get me just as far ahead. But if you're really stuck, then you can go ahead and you can plan for that as well. That's the other thing, right? That you have to plan for having the central bank to be able to use the gold that the central bank could give you, as opposed to saying, hey, game, I'm kind of in a tight spot. Uh, Can I just abstractly say that, hey, my palace is my central bank and I can take out a certain amount of money anytime. No, I think it needs to be a little more of a build-up to that. 
another thing that you could maybe do to extend this idea is maybe you actually have to declare what you're using the loan for. So maybe you take out a loan to build units or you take out a loan to build buildings and you can only do one thing or the other with that money. Could also tie it maybe to that, okay, you wanted to take out this loan right now. Okay, you've taken out the 500 gold. And so it's like on that turn, okay, go ahead and take that action. Spend that 500 gold. And you said that you wanted it to, I don't know, purchase a workshop. Okay, so it's now tied to, you don't necessarily have to have it be that strict that it only applies to industrial zones, but it could be that whatever amount you've currently got in your treasury, the game knows, and it's just on this turn, you know, don't just have it ride. Like you want to be able to do something with that gold right now. And so you go and you spend it. And it's done. And it could be allocated for, yes, it could be allocated for units. It could be allocated for buildings. One of those two things. And then the money is spent. And then starting the next turn, you're paying it back. With interest. Lots of interest. Oh, yeah. I think it's fair to say that in the end, over the course of the number of turns that you're paying it back, as is suggested in the example, you borrowed 500 gold. And in the end, you end up paying 750. That some percentage that you're going to have to pay back more ultimately, but it was better for you to pay that more gold over an extended period of time because you got that lump sum right up front. And keep in mind, historically, for most of the time period that Civ covers, the central banks weren't a thing. An alternative idea is instead of it being a mechanic where you're taking out a loan against yourself, maybe it is a mechanic where you have the diplomatic deal, an option on the diplomacy screen to take out a loan from another Civ. Where, yeah. you know, you get a lump sum and then you owe them gold per turn with interest. And if you don't fulfill the payments, then there would be diplomatic or economic repercussions. Uh, is there going to be a good CV for clones? Lol. <laughs> I like that idea more, but I worry about the programming of the artificial intelligence to handle yeah, this competently. easily exploitable. You just, you get your lump sum of gold from the AI and then you declare war on them the next turn to cancel the deal and not pay any of it back. episode feedback i just see the two comments from legalized freedom and you guys are talking about beyond earth and uh, resources for high level units i thought it was a interesting idea of bringing something from beyond earth into mainline civ i don't think we'd really talked about before or considered before yeah the uh high level units and buildings uh, requiring resources and beyond earth kept tabs on that legalized freedom felt that, that was something that they did correctly I would definitely like to see more of your buildings and infrastructure actually require or even consume resources so that there's a trade-off between whether you want to use those resources for military applications or for domestic or economic applications. For example, do I spend my coal to build an ironclad or do I spend it to build a railroad? Yeah, and CIF5 had some of that too, but Beyond Earth really emphasized it. They had like that you had to have the resource in order to build some of the buildings, but the building never really like consumed the resource. You didn't have to trade off between building a factory or building an ironclad. It was you just had to build the factory first, and then you could build the ironclad. Because if you built the ironclad first, you might not have the coal or I whatever see. left over to build the factory. So I'd, I'd like to see it work both ways. Where Yeah, the Beyond Earth model is better then, for sure. You would consume the resource to uh, construct the building, like you're saying. Yeah, that is something that I would prefer to see in a mainline Civ as well. I'd even go so far as to say that maybe even spending coal or an oil in order to do things like move units along your railroad hub or airlift them, like it takes away a copy of it for like a turn or whatever. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be interesting because then you could so, tie that to movement. And it right. would also be a lot more important to keep control of these. Yeah. Right. So hypothetically, if I only have three excess coal, then I'm limited to only being able to move three units along my railroads. Or if I only have three oil, I can only airlift three units. So there's incentive to get more of those so that you can do more things. Yeah. Yep, and to help uh, back to things that we've talked about before, general issues with Civ right now and Civ 6, it's, my gosh, how much of the map at a certain point is left untouched because nobody started there, and oh, why would I want to go to the effort of constructing this new city for in order to be able to do something? I've got everything I need right at home. Yeah, unless, of course, you're consuming those things and you actually have to get more of them. And it could also fuel additional conflict. Either it's a race now to get that spot, and or afterwards it's like, oh, you got there first, but that doesn't mean you get to hold on to it. Declare war. And you could even extend that to luxuries as well, where maybe instead of just a copy of a luxury giving all your cities amenity or happiness or whatever, maybe you actually have to allocate luxury to a specific city and only that city gets the benefit. And maybe that could even be dependent on your government type. Maybe if you're in a capitalist type of government, free market kind of government, then the luxuries are given to whoever takes them. Whereas if you're in more of like a socialist or communist government, then like you actually have the power to say who gets which amenities. And then in that sense, there's also an incentive to acquire more luxuries because you'd need more copies of the same luxuries in order to keep all of your citizens happy. Living in a material world. Thanks, Madonna. You see, kids, there is this artist. And <laughs> I, I think the Internet knows who Madonna is, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Internet might know, but I'm not certain the people on the Internet know. I think the Internet knows yeah. more than some people, quite frankly. If they don't, they can Google it. Well, they'd have to know about Google first. Yeah. Okay, Dan, now you're taking it too far. Oh boy, 17 years ago, Civilization 3 was released. Civ 3 actually happens to be the first Civ game that I played. So, uh, yeah, wow. That does make me feel a little old. You know, when I think about previous Civilization titles, Civilization 3 is the one I honestly remember the least about. About playing the game. It was just... It went from being... How do I say this? It wasn't frustrating at the time. I mean, once Civilization 3 came out, I did stop playing Civilization 2. There were things I preferred about Civilization 2, but I was playing Civilization 3, and I was understanding Civilization 3. It was when Civilization 4 came out that I realized, oh, all of the things that I did not like about Civilization 3, and mostly what I do remember, and I've used this expression before, is button vomit. But Civilization 3 must have done something right because it allowed Civilization 4 to exist, which then in turn begat Civilization 5, which begat Civilization 6. <laughs> yeah, based on what, how the uh, internet tends to talk about Civilization 3, uh, the fact that I started with Civilization 3 sounds like it should be amazing that I'm still playing the game. <laughs> playing the series. <laughs> But, you know, I don't remember it being that bad either. I, I still remember there being a lot of interesting mechanics in it. The one mechanic from Civilization 3, and it comes up recurringly on this show, and it struck me was the concept of colonies. That if you wanted access to this particular resource, you didn't have to go to the extent of constructing a settler and having a city there. You could just go construct a colony, park a military unit on it. As long as you had a road back to your empire, then you were able to take advantage of that particular resource. Not necessarily exactly how it was applied in Civilization 3 would work well in, say, a Civilization 6 or a, you know, in future Civilization 7 if they did that, but just the concept itself 
It's just kind of one of those things, and I guess I would also give credit to Civilization 3 for its uh, Play the World expansion and adding multiplayer capabilities. I mean, yes, the original Civilization had CivNet, which was the one expansion for the original Civ, but it was plagued with a lot of issues. It was kind of a afterthought that had absolutely no place in the initial design of the game. I mean, yes, Play the World was an expansion. Can't be certain if they always intended for Civilization 3 to have multiplayer capabilities, but there is also a really active Civilization 3 modding community still out there, even after 17 years. That really got a lot of people realizing what they could do with modding, and that influenced future people in modding, which has extended the life of the franchise, and I think a lot of us would be willing to acknowledge that. It kept the things that worked well in Civilization 2, and didn't screw up enough things to prevent Civilization 4, so it was just kind of a, a stepping stone. I don't know about Phil and Mackie, but I said other than colonies and button vomit and getting me to convince my parents that we needed to buy a new computing system because there was a new Civilization title out, I really don't remember much about the game at all, other than I played it for way, way too many hours. Mm, I didn't play it that much because it didn't have the controls that its competitors had at the time and that Civ 4 wound up having. So it was kind of frustrating to complete a game in comparison to a lot of alternatives at the time. I did play it some, though. And as I'm reading here the Wikipedia entry, I'm reminded of two things that I should have remembered. One which was, oh yeah, and the other one was, wow. One was that citizens may have been of different nationalities in the game. So if you conquered a city, you had to really watch the happiness management because it's like, hey, you're English, I'm French, you just took over this French city, and that had some impact that they would consider themselves members of the previous civilization until they were assimilated into the new civilization. It didn't have a lot of game impact other than to say that, hey, this city is, you know, still 30% French and it's now 70% English. But Civilization Three did introduce the concept of culture. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the citizens having a specific nationality is something that seems like it would play really well with the loyalty system that's in uh, Civ Six currently. And also in the culture, you know, so now the concept of borders and any city has a cultural rating and it increases its influence, which would bring more territory into players' control, including the ability to peacefully conquest a city by uh, just going up on their borders and just culture flipping them. So <laughs> you got served. You know, just anecdotally, I'm like, yeah, culture, yeah, Civilization Four, good job for, I think more people pay attention to it for what Civilization Four did with culture, for better or worse, but it was, the idea was introduced in Civilization Three. Couldn't you win culture in Civ Three already? I think you could. Yes. The cultural victory is achieved by successfully assimilating other civilizations. A.K.A. you Borgify the planet, yes. Yeah, and there was also the uh, a diplomatic victory in that one as well. Diplomatic victory, lol. Guess I just still think about the parts where, the, like, the original multiplayer was kind of broke, and I mean, it was the first, you know, actual full multiplayer type thing for Civ, at least. I mean, you had CivNet, but that was more local. And <laughs> Civ doesn't have a stellar history of good MP on release, does it? <laughs> not really, not really. Just to put it mildly, I had fun with it, but I'm not, you know, I'm not like craving to go back to it. Oh heck, no, no, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Civ 4, maybe. Civ 3, no. I don't think I own a copy anymore. I mean, it might be like somewhere collecting dust. I'm pretty sure I have a CD. I do. Sitting around somewhere. I do. I know I do. The original, all the expansions, I've got all of that. As time has gone on, it's you either fiercely defend it or you fiercely look the other way. And some people, I think, pretend it just went from Civ 2 to Civ 4. 
I'm going to say I'm guilty of that too, but I think it's worthwhile acknowledging that there were some things that were worthwhile from Civilization 3, and I also remember that Civ 3, unfortunately, had this issue where a lot of its lead personnel left very early on in the project. And I do remember Soren Johnson, who would go on to design Civilization 4, said he remembered reading on a Polton Civilization site, and it was a news item I posted on that Civilization fan site, that Firaxis Games were looking for developers, and he said, I saw that on a Polton, and I applied and, I mean, he then came in with some other people to try to pick up the pieces. But, of course, the train had already left the station. And it's like, I think these are the deadlines and they have to be met and it has to be released. And so I think it very much served as an inspiration for things that can go well and not so well in Civ. And now let's actually, for example, flesh out what Civilization 3 was trying to do and make it a little more practical, a little more likable, and set aside those things that were, well, we've been there and done that and contributed to the third, third, and third that kind of held, has held Civilization design since far, you know, a third new, a third old, and a third modified. And at least it wasn't Master of Orion. Oh, well, <laughs> that's... Uh... As we pointed out, the series continued. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I do want to say that, and I think I've expressed this before, is I want to see Firaxis or whoever developing Civilization games in the future, if it's not Firaxis anymore, to take risks and to try new things with uh, new releases. Because I don't want the game to start looking like annual release Call of Duties and Assassin's Creeds and sports games where there's tiny incremental improvements and then major problems don't ever get fixed. You know, I'd like to see Civilization try radically different things. Than Civilization 2019, it's in the game. Yeah, right, exactly. I'd rather see Civilization 7 try radically different things than what Civilization 5 and Civilization 6 have done. Civ 6 got criticism upon release for being <laughs> Civ 5.5. I don't want Civ 7 to get criticism for being Civ 6.5 or by proxy Civ 5.75. And I think maybe part of the problem with Civilization 3 was it tried some big ideas and they just didn't work. But kudos for trying. I certainly do not remember anyone talking about Civilization 3 like, oh, Civilization 3 is only Civilization 2.5, or Civilization 2 is only like Civilization 1.5. Yes, we quote-unquote didn't really have the internet as we know it today. Most people would never even heard of the internet when we're talking about certainly Civilization 1 and Civilization 2 being released. There just wasn't the conversation, there wasn't the engagement with Civilization fans being able to find each other around the globe and, and congregate on forums like Civilization Fanatic Center, and maybe more so in the past, a Bolton Civilization site and now the reddits and the steam communities but oh man i'm with you for the risks there just not risk itself don't put actual risk in civilization 7 you right. rolled poorly well <laughs> <laughs> yeah support the ongoing polycast patreon campaign collective achievements Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121288-7659. That's 44121288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. 
For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. This has been episode 323 of Polycast. I'm Makalua, and joining me as usual is Dan Q. Can I set up a colony right next to you on your border? Do you like war declarations? This is how you get war declarations. Me and team. I've got just the trade route to set up with you. Mega Bearsman. I can hit snooze button now. Yeah, really, can we? You can hit it. I don't know if it'll do any good. You <laughs> certainly can hit it. Nobody's going to stop you. Go ahead. Record date November 3rd. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.